turn around the other way and get my good side. <laughs> well, oh, it's good to be back with you this morning. Thank you, Brother John, for those kind words. Um, I always say when you can't do anything very well, you got to do a whole bunch of other stuff to try to make up for it. Uh, mediocre and uh, that's my only claim to fame is mediocrity. I got a lot of that. And, uh, but I'm thankful for the Lord to allow me to be here with you folks. I've certainly enjoyed my time here. You're such a gracious bunch of people and good listeners, good hearers. And that, of course, encourages good preaching. And maybe you can draw some of that out of me this morning as you sort of listen well. Uh, we are in the Old Testament. We're going to be back in 2 Samuel this morning. If you want to be making your way over there, 2 Samuel chapter 15 is where we'll get started. And uh, we are in what generally are referred to as historical narratives. And sometimes it is difficult for us to, well, we read the story, you know, we're reading through the Bible and we come to these things and we sort of scratch our heads and well, that's interesting and just go on. What I'm trying to do is to uh, sort of draw out of these things that happened in the life of David to be able to apply them to our own lives and to inform us of the ways of God, how he works. And last evening, if you were here, we saw about the terrible calamity that happened in David's home. Now, David was a wonderful man. I think he's the most Christ-like man in the Old Testament. That's my estimation of him. But he had his failures, as we well know. One of those failures was as a father was not a very good father. And uh, we see the damage that occurs in his own home as a direct result of his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, the sword will never depart from your house, God told him through the prophet. And we saw that sort of unfold uh, last evening with the uh, assassination of his oldest son Amnon by his third oldest son. Now the second one apparently died in childhood, so this is the uh, third uh, son, second son that's alive, Absalom, and apparently his pride and joy, as we'll see today. And, uh, well, David then uh, is mourning for his son. His son is the daughter, his son's mother, Absalom's mother, is the daughter of the king of Geshur. Geshur is a little kingdom just to the north of Israel in the area of Syria. And Absalom, after he kills his oldest brother, flees to Geshur. And there you remember the uh, pining of David, wanting to get his son back, apparently. I mean, he's the oldest living son. He would be the heir apparent to David if something happened to David. And, uh, but on the one hand, he's, he's caught in that dilemma, isn't he? He wants to get his son back and show mercy, and yet at the same time, he's the king. He's supposed to be ruling in righteousness and justice. So he's caught on the horns of this dilemma. How do I show mercy and yet be just at the same time? And we sort of explored that and then saw this widow woman. Well, she pretended to be a widow woman from Tekoa who came with a little tear-jerking story about her two boys. You remember that. And the thing that we centered on was that she mentions that the Lord devises means by which he brings back his banished ones. And of course, we call that means the gospel. That's exactly what God does for us. We see it in the New Testament, don't we? The prodigal son gets his inheritance takes off for the hills. He leaves Israel, leaves the covenant people, turns his back on Israel and their God, is out there squandering his father's wealth uh, in riotous living and all that that entailed and winds up uh, destitute when the money runs out, wanting to eat with the pigs, about as low as you can go for a Jew. And uh, you say, well, where he comes back. You remember the father receives him. And where is Jesus in that? Is he... The robe that the father puts on his son's back? Is he the fatted calf that's killed in the feast? I, I think more than anything else, Jesus is the road home. That that's the point. That Jesus has made a way for someone who has done an act like that to come back into the good graces of God Almighty. That through the work of Christ, we have a way home. After all, he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
So we saw that last evening. But that leads us into where we are this morning in 2 Samuel 15. Let's start. I'm just going to read a little. We're going to try to cover about four chapters in bringing this thing together. And we'll start here in chapter 15, verse 7. 2 Samuel 15, verse 7. And it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said unto his king, unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. Now Hebron's about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. And uh, this is a request that makes some sense. Uh, let's read on. Verse 8. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Remember, Geshur is where he fled after he killed his brother. And he said, I made a vow while I was up there that if I ever get to go back home, I will go down and pay a vow and serve the Lord at Hebron, about 20 miles due south. And that was an important place for Absalom. You look back a little earlier, that was his birthplace. So I want to go back home. I want to go back where it all started, and I will pay my vow to the Lord. I want to go worship God in a special way. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went two hundred men out of Jerusalem who were called or invited, and they went in their simplicity. They knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. We'll stop there and sort of take a look at what's, what's happening here. As we saw last night that David's attempt to try to reconcile with his son, try to, you know, solve this dilemma, how to be a just judge and yet at the same time get his boy back, just sort of fell to pieces. He tried to ride the fence. On the one hand, he brought Absalom home, but he wouldn't see him. He wouldn't let him see his face. Put him sort of under house arrest for a while. And Absalom just seethes and broods. And uh, as we can see, uh, as time goes on, although David's brought his son back home, David and Absalom are never really truly reconciled. We get a sense of Absalom's character back in chapter 14. Let me give you some descriptions of Absalom. Verse 25, But in all Israel there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. He's a one good-looking guy, okay? From the sole of his foot even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish. Now, when Brother John was listing my gifts, he didn't mention my good looks. Probably a reason for that. But here is uh, one of our preachers, Brother Conrad Murrow once said, God never called a good-looking man to preach. That's tough, John. I don't know how we, how we can, might go to doubt in our calling after a while. But, uh, but yeah, I think Conrad's probably right to a large degree. And here we see a case of a good-looking guy. And verse 26, when he pulls his hair, to pull meant to cut your hair. For it was at every year's end that he pulled it. He waited an entire year to cut his hair. And therefore he pulled it and he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. Uh, a shekel is about 11 grams, we think. And so this would make the weight of his hair five pounds. At the end of the year, he cut, I'm, I mean... You can also see, uh, I have this theory, Brother John may be an exception, that uh, you've got to watch out for these preachers with a lot of hair. I mean, the biblical way, you think of Elisha, remember the boys came out and said, go up, go up, thou bald head. 
And then Paul, tradition says, was four foot eleven and bald headed, short and bald. I find that strangely attractive myself. But uh, you got to watch out for these guys. Uh, are you getting a clue here what just might be this guy's problem? And then notice at the first of chapter 15 that not only that, but after a while, Absalom has a horse and a chariot that he's riding in, and he has 50 men as his entourage to run before him and to announce, here comes Absalom. And we read of how slowly Absalom, as the Scripture put it, stole the hearts, in verse 6, stole the hearts of Israel away from David. He was set outside the palace. Remember again, the king just didn't sit on the throne looking pretty all day. His job was to judge these disputes. That's why the woman in Tekoa that we looked at last night brought her dispute to David. And so as these people came to present their case before David, Absalom would meet them at the gate and more or less say, man, I wish I was the judge. I'd judge it, rule in your favor. Uh, but, you know, who knows what he's going to do. And you can do that to both sides when you're not the judge. You understand. You can go to both parties in the dispute and say, well, yeah, I would rule in your favor if you just had somebody on your side. Oh, that I were judge in Israel. And slowly he stole the hearts of Israel away from his father. So it comes as no great surprise then that after this period of time that Absalom is at what we would call attempting a coup. He is attempting to drive his father off the throne and in fact murder his father, kill him, and seize the kingdom for himself. And down in verse 12, we have this little verse, 2 Samuel 15, verse 12, that Absalom sent for Ahithophel. And that's really the title of my message this morning, the counsel of Ahithophel. He's not a well-known figure, but he was an important figure to this story here. So let me try to describe what's going on. David and his household and those loyal to him suddenly are surprised that there is this rebellion coming up. Absalom is marching up from the south with the men that are supporting him from Hebron, just 20 miles away. And David is back in Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem in David's day was just a steep ridge, had gullies on three sides, making it easy to defend, and David's house was built on the north end of the city. We think of Jerusalem being this big metropolis, you know. Actually, it was only about 15 acres in size, and in that day, uh, about 100 people to the acre was as most you could have. So it's a town at best, 1,500 people. It's still a small city. There weren't large cities in Israel during that day. So it's a small place on this steep ridge. And David and his family, his servants, those loyal to him, suddenly have to flee. Because Absalom is coming into the city from the south as David and his people loyal to him are having to flee to the east, out the city of David, down in the Kedron Valley, and up on what we call Mount of Olives, over the Mount of Olives, trying to get away from Absalom. Now, if you ever think you're having a bad day, compare it to what David is experiencing here. First, his family, his servants, the palace guard, these Pelethites and Cherethites, these Gittites. They're from the Philistine city of Gath of all places, but that's David's personal guard. And they are fleeing, and David goes to the, the commander of these Gittites, Ataya is his name, and he says, Ataya, no, 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 uh, you don't have to do this. You know, you guys are not from here. This, you don't have a dog in this fight. Uh, you just got here. Uh, this is not your homeland, you know. So you, you just, you guys just pack your bags and go back to Gath. And no harm, no foul. I won't think the worst of you. And Atalia here has a, a wonderful statement. In, look in 2 Samuel 15, verse 21. Atalia answers the king and says, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king liveth, Surely in what place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or in life, even there also will thy servant be. 
Boy, that's a great definition of what it means to be a servant. In other words, David, wherever you're going, sink or swim, heaven or hell, we're with you. We're going, we're going too. So David allowed them to go. Then in verse 24, we find the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, are carrying the Ark of the Covenant out of the city of Jerusalem. David's just at the edge of town. The last house is what's being implied here. And here come the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, following David out of town. And you get an insight into David's character here. He says, no, 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 wait, no, no. This isn't right. Uh, What this is portraying is that God then is following me in my wanderings in my escape attempt you take the ark back and if God be pleased he'll let me come back here to the ark rather than follow me out there with the ark wherever I wind up but he said you can help me because you've got two boys that are fast and so uh, if there's messages to be sent to me send them to you two boys and let them apprise me of what I need to do and so the description here, as David goes down, if you can get this in your, it's the area there around Jerusalem, much more rugged than what you have here. Very steep gullies, uh, and David is having to go down this steep side to the Valley of Kedron. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane, where our Lord prayed, was at the bottom of that valley. And then up the hill, there's a ridge on the other side. There's three tops to that ridge. And the one in the middle is what they call the Mount of Olives. It's really just a long ridge, but the Mount of Olives is there in the center. So he's going down this ridge to the bottom of the gully and then up the other side. And as he's doing that, look at verse 30. Look at the description of David here. David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered and he went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered every man his head and they went up weeping as they went up. In other words, here is a man utterly crushed, utterly dejected. I mean, you may have had bad days. You ever had your own son turn on you and try to kill you? Drive you from the throne? The son that you delight in? The favored son, as it were, the one you thought was going to succeed you in life? You can see how dejecting this would have been. And then, if that's not bad enough, look at verse 31. One told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel, your trusted counselor, the fellow that you looked at. Some of y'all are old enough to remember Henry Kissinger. right? We were talking about Nixon the other night. During the Nixon administration, you know, Henry Kissinger, for better or worse, was a trusted advisor. He was supposed to, you know, know what to do and know how to negotiate. Ahithophel would have been the Henry Kissinger of David's day. He was the guy that David leaned upon for his counsel. And now he hears that Ahithophel has defected over to Absalom. And so not only will David not have his counsel, Absalom will be the beneficiary of it. And notice here the last part of verse 31. If you ever wonder, is it worthwhile praying? Let this sink in. Here, prayer doesn't have to be long. Prayer doesn't have to be eloquent. Here's a very short little prayer. David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Wasn't very long, but it was heartfelt. And it was heard Because immediately, even though David didn't know it at the time, immediately God begins to answer that short little prayer in the most unexpected, unknown way. And it involves the very next verse, verse 32, another one of David's counselors, another advisor. He's an old guy. I I sort of like old guys all of a sudden in life. They're, They're interesting to me. His name is Hushai the Archite. And we see him huffing and puffing, climbing up this ridge that I've described to you. And uh, his coat is torn. He's got dirt thrown on his head. 
And uh, he's coming out of Jerusalem to go with David. Ahithophel has defected to Absalom, but here comes Hushai, his other advisor, that is following David on his flight out of town. But David looks at him and says, Hushai, come on, let's get real here. If you go with me, you're just going to slow me down. You're just going to be a burden to me. Identify with that, right? It's one thing to flee when you're a young guy and you're fast. It's another when you're an old man can barely make it up the hill. So David turns to Ahushai and says, if you want to really be helpful to me, go back into Jerusalem and meet Absalom as he comes from the other direction. And pretend that you're going to be loyal to him just like you've been loyal to me. Pretend to do what Ahithophel has done. Pretend to defect over to Absalom's side. And that way you can advise me as to what I need to do. I need to, need to know, do I run? Do I, if I do, where do I go? Uh, what's Absalom's plans? What is he attempting to do? You then can get the inside scoop on what Absalom's planning. You got the two priests over here and their boys. Use them as your messengers to send word to me and apprise me as what I need to do. So sure enough, that's what they do. Hushai goes back into the city. Now, you're just David is just being hit by wave after wave of bad news. And you say, well, can it get any worse than this? It can't always get worse. Don't ever say that. You just can't get worse than that. Oh yeah, it can. The next thing that happens in chapter 16, verse 1, David now has made it just past the top of the hill. Notice the hill is, that's the Mount of Olives. He's just over the top. And he looks up and here comes a guy named Ziba with a couple of donkeys filled with provisions, loaded down with provisions. Now we've met this guy earlier. He was the servant of Mephibosheth. I'm assuming you're familiar with the story of Mephibosheth. You remember he was the lame son of Jonathan, who when Saul was killed, David became king. Um, Mephibosheth just probably figures he's a dead duck. Because usually when one dynasty, a family line of kings, takes over from another dynasty... The first order of business is to kill all the males left in that previous kingly family. So there'll be no rival to your throne. And you'll see that happening a number of times in the history of the Old Testament. Well, Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. We learn, you remember, he was crippled when he fell as a child. They were got news about Saul being slain by the Philistines and a nurse picked him up to run. We don't know all the details, but there was a fall. And Mephibosheth is crippled, and he's up in Lodabar, about as far north in Israel as you can get, about as far away from David as you can get, and undoubtedly sort of hiding up there just below the radar. And David begins to ask around, anybody know if any, Saul's got anybody left? And I'm sure his servant said, yeah, I think we know why you're asking too. And one of them pops up and says, oh, well, Jonathan's got this boy. He's up there in Lodabar. And David says, go fetch him. And you know the wonderful story. David sends his men to bring Mephibosheth to him, to his palace. And Mephibosheth is down on the ground in front of David, undoubtedly thinking the next thing he's going to hear is David command his men and say, off with his head. And instead, David says, Mephibosheth, I'm giving you back the family estate, the family farm. You're going to come here and sit at my table as one of my own children and eat at the king's table. I'm giving you Ziba, this guy that we're meeting here, his servants, they're going to work the farm for you. And Mephibosheth just shocked, says, who am I that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? It's one of the most remarkable pictures of grace that you'll ever find in the Bible. Wonderful story. But... But, here Ziba comes, he's got donkeys, he's got provisions, but he don't have Mephibosheth. And David's first question to him, where's your master? Where's Mephibosheth? And what does Ziba say? Oh, he's back at his house, licking his chops, saying that today, Israel's going to restore to me the kingdom of my father. 
and uh, you think about it. Wait, what? Number one, how could you be so ungrateful? How could this possibly be that after David has shown you this kindness, so unexpected, so undeserved, taken you into his home, treated you like one of his own boys, how could you now turn against him? And secondly, are you so dumb to think that Absalom is going to raise an army and drive his father off the throne just so he can turn the kingdom over to you? (laughs) Wake up and smell the coffee. And so you can imagine in the frame of mind we've already seen David being in to suddenly get this news, just devastating news. And so he says to Ziba, I gave Saul's estate to Mephibosheth. Now I'm giving it to you. It's yours. You say, well, it can't get any worse than that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Next thing that happens. David's now on the other side of the Mount of Olives, going down the hill on the other side. There's a little village called Behurim. And there's one of Saul's relatives over there that comes out of his house. Now, get this in your mind. House undoubtedly is up here sort of on the side of the hill. Here's the road leading out of Jerusalem down below. You got David, his servants, he's got his palace guard. He's still got, you remember those guys, Joab, Abishai, those nephews of his, vicious warriors. He's got those troops that are still loyal to him, following him down the road, heading away from Jerusalem. And here comes this fool, a relative of Saul, out of his house, cussing him, cursing him, picking up dirt and rocks and throwing it at David and assailing him with these accusations. Notice verse 7. We're in chapter 16 now. Chapter 16, verse 7. Thus said Shimei, that's his name, when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man. Thou... uh, Well, it's not a nice thing he's saying to him. The Lord has returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul in whose stead thou hast reigned. God's getting you now. You're guilty of Saul's blood. And now God is judging you for it. And of course, this is so unfair. You remember when David was fleeing from Saul, he had two occasions. He could have easily have killed Saul and refused to touch the Lord's anointing. But here comes this guy charging David with being responsible for the death, the blood of Saul, cussing him, Throwing rocks at him. And Abishai, one of those sons, is you know, Joab's brother. Abishai pipes up and says, David, you just say the word and he will never cuss you again. I'll go over there and take his head off. Now I might ask you, what would you have done? I'm thinking you and I probably would have reasoned, God, I I understand. I need, you know, I'm, I'm being punished for my... Transgression, I get that. I'm being disciplined. But come on, I don't have to take this. You know, I've got a line here. I've got my limits to what I can absorb. I don't have to do this. And yet David says to Abishai, come on, settle down. The Lord has told him curse, so let him curse. Maybe the Lord will look upon this and give me good for evil. I think David realized that this is part of his punishment for what he did with Bathsheba. You remember, he was forgiven the sin as far as an eternal thing is concerned, but he still got to suffer the consequences for his sin. Sin like David with Bathsheba, you've been around the block enough to know, I certainly know, your pastor certainly knows, that when a sin like what David committed with Bathsheba occurs, it's like throwing a rock into a pond. The ripples go everywhere. It's like a hand grenade going off. And you know, the people involved say, well, no, this is just a little thing between us. Oh, no. In fact, Ahithophel, you might ask, why in the world would he have defected over to David? Well, if you'll study the genealogies, we don't have time to do it this morning, you'll find that Ahithophel's son was Eliam, and Eliam's daughter was Bathsheba. Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Give you a little insight into what might have been the motive of Ahithophel to defect from David over to Absalom. I know one thing, you mess with my granddaughter, you're going to have to mess with me. 
And I suspect that's what's going on behind the scenes with Ahithophel. So in other words, the ripples, the damage that that sin just went in all directions. And God has forgiven him, and yet the consequences of that sin live on. In the meanwhile, Absalom and his forces are entering Jerusalem. Hushai meets up with him, says, I'm here to serve you just like I've served David. And Absalom says, this is the way you're going to reward your friend? You know, oh no, I'm, I'm just going to serve whoever the Lord chooses to be king. That's who I'll serve. He's not really lying, is he? Whoever the Lord chooses, that's, that's who I'll be loyal to. And so he convinces, that Abs- uh, convinces Absalom that he's on his side. So it gets time for Absalom to have a little powwow with his advisors to ask, what do we do? And he calls Ahithophel in verse 20. We're in chapter 16, verse 20. It says, Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you what ye shall do. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go in unto thy father's concubines. When David fled the city, he left ten of his concubines, that's his slave wives, servant wives, behind to keep his house for him while he's out. Go in unto thy father's concubines whom he hath left to keep the house and all Israel shall hear that thou art abhorred of thy father and then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. Basically, go have sex with your father's slave wives. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house, David's house. And Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. I didn't say Ahithophel's advice was always moral, but the next verse tells us that it was always right on target, that he knew exactly what needed to be done. Look at verse 23. The counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. Is God ever wrong? Is his advice ever faulty? No. And the text says that Ahithophel was like that. He never missed. He always knew exactly what needed to be done. Now, I didn't say this is the most moral thing that he's advising Absalom, but it is the right thing from a pragmatic point of view. Because if you want to convince the nation to join you in your rebellion against your father, you need to make it clear to them there can never be any peace between you and your father. And so in doing this dastardly deed, you're making it clear, I'm taking my father's place, I'm taking his wives as my own wives. But unwittingly, he's also fulfilling prophecy. The words that Nathan the prophet had spoken to David when he confronted him with his adultery with Bathsheba. Do you remember what Nathan said? David, you did this thing secretly. What I'm going to do to you will be done publicly in the eyes of all Israel. And do you realize that it was on that very rooftop of David's house where David had stood and gazed lustingly at Bathsheba, now the punishment. This one not done privately under the radar, but openly in the sight of the whole city. Everybody observes and witnesses what Absalom is doing to his father. This is public humiliation of David. And Ahithophel goes on in chapter 17 say, here's what you need to do. Here's my advice. This night, let me take 12,000 of your men and pursue David. He's down. He's dejected. He's discouraged. He's not ready for a fight. Let me take 12,000 men tonight and we will go after him. We'll find him when he's weak. And I'll be able to get him and bring back all the people back to you. And everybody says, you know, that's probably, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And Hushai, the other advisor, the one that's going to be loyal to David, 
realizes the danger this places David in. That this is exactly the right thing to do. If you're looking at this from a standpoint of military tactics, yes, that's, that will end this thing. Because David, as we saw, walking barefoot with his head covered, weeping, he's not in the mood for a fight. And so Hushai realizes the danger that this would place David in. So he speaks up to give his advice. And he says, well, the counsel of Ahithophel is... Uh, he's not... Uh, uh, verse 7. The counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good at this time. There's a better option here, Absalom. And Hushai says to Absalom, you know your dad. He's a mighty warrior. This is the guy that killed Goliath, you know. He's the one that has led the army. He's not... He, weak and dejected he's mad he's angry he's like a sow bear that has been robbed of her cubs i don't know if you know anything about that scenario but that's not a good place to be if you're around a a sow bear who has been robbed of her cubs in other words he's angry he's ready to get even take revenge and he's not going to be with the rest of the people. He and his men are going to be out here hiding somewhere in the rocks and the hills. And you're going to send 12,000 guys out with a hithbolt in the middle of the night. I mean, there's no street lights. There's no flashlights. You, you get the picture. You're going out into the dark. And no doubt, David and his men are going to come out of their hiding places and ambush you. And the word's going to get out that... David's winning. David's defeating you and your men. And the whole nation that is behind you at the moment is going to start, hmm, maybe we better rethink this thing. You're going to lose the support of the people. So they say, okay, well, what do you suggest? He said, I suggest you wait a while. Let's just let things calm down. Let's get the whole nation together, all the way from Dan to Beersheba. Dan's in the extreme north of Israel. Beersheba's an oasis in the extreme desert in the south. That's like saying from New York to L.A. to refer to the whole country here. Uh, All the way from the north to the south. Let's get the whole nation together. Let's get a big army and let's go after David. Because it really doesn't matter where David goes. If he holds up in some town... We'll just bring our ropes there and put rope around the whole village and drag it into the river. In other words, it really doesn't matter. We can overwhelm him with numbers. And you lead the army. You go as the head of the nation. And uh, notice verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. What a lucky break that Absalom is going to be convinced by Hushai rather than Ahithophel. No, it's not a lucky break. Look at the rest of verse 14. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent of that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. There are times we see things happen, especially in these historical narratives, and like I said, we just scratch our head. We, We never see really what's going on behind the scenes. But here is one time that the Lord pulls the curtain back and lets you understand what's happening behind the scenes. That this might just look to our eyes, you know, Absalom's just having a bad day. His biorhythms are down. You know, whatever. Or we might just chalk it up to bad luck. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. He should have followed Ahithophel's advice. Instead, he follows Hushai's advice. And David is able to escape. But what this verse tells us, it just gives us a glimpse that no, behind all of this stuff that's happening, there is a sovereign God who is pulling all the strings, and all of this is happening exactly as the Lord has determined and appointed it ought to be done. God had a purpose in bringing this affliction, this discipline, this punishment upon David from the beginning. That's what Nathan the prophet told David. The sword's not going to depart from your house. And I'm going to publicly humiliate you. I'm going to take those wives that I gave you and give them to another. So we see that this is all in God's purpose and God's plan. And even here, in this choice that Absalom is making, this is the critical choice, by the way. 
You know, in every war, every battle, there's a right place and a right time. A right decision has to be made. Ahithophel apparently realizes that. Verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. Man, talk about a sore loser. I don't think that's what this was. I think Ahithophel was as wise as the Bible makes him out to be. That Ahithophel realized what I just said, that in every conflict there is a time that you must act, and if you miss that, you've lost it forever. I think Ahithophel realized that the critical thing that Absalom should have done was not done, and like dominoes falling, this thing's going to come to nothing. And sure enough, what happens Hushai is able to get word to the priest's sons. They make a dash outside of Jerusalem to get to David, telling him, get out of Dodge, get away from here. And that night, rather than being found by Absalom's men, David is able to escape from the reach of Absalom, cross over the Jordan River to the other side to a place called Mahanaim. Just to sort of sum up what happens from that point on, we find that uh, there's a big battle. Absalom brings the army of Israel down to the other side of the Jordan. David is able to get his army uh, gathered together and they go out to battle in Mount Ephraim. Apparently very, it is a very rugged, I've seen the, the area that's part of Gilead, very rugged area. Not all that many trees today, but there apparently were back in that day. And we learn that in the, in the course of the battle, Absalom is riding on the mule and runs under an oak tree and that hair of which he is so proud, apparently, is caught in the boughs of that oak tree. And the mule runs off out from under him. And so there is Absalom hanging between heaven and earth, absolutely helpless. And you remember the story that Joab, learning where Absalom is, takes these darts, these three, those brothers... Uh, like those points that you were showing us yesterday, spears with those kinds of points on them and thrusts them through Absalom's heart so that he dies and the coup attempt is over. David escapes. Now that's the story. What in the world does it mean? What can we glean from it? And I want you again to go back to what I said a little while ago and to inquire as to the ways of God, how God sees that His purposes are performed by people. We, we have this notion, especially in our circles, that after all, we believe in the sovereignty of God, so we're just all sort of like robots out there. We really don't have a choice to do this or that. We're just sort of automatons, you know, uh, at reacting at God. But here we see something different. We begin to see that, yes, on the one hand, God is sovereign. His purpose is performed. And yet on the other hand, man is what we would call a moral free agent. Now that doesn't mean the same as having free will. But what I mean by man being a moral agent, a free agent, is that we do what we want to do simply because we want to do it. Nobody is forcing us. Nobody is making us make the decisions, make the choices. We freely choose this or that. That's why we're responsible. In other words, if a, co a crook comes along, sticks a gun to your head, makes you go inside and rob the bank, we don't put you in jail for that. You didn't have a choice. You were forced to do it, correct? No, you're a criminal because you freely chose to rob the bank of your own free will. Okay? And I mean that in the sense you did it simply because you wanted to. 
Did anybody's will get violated in this account? Notice how it happens that Absalom chooses Hushai's advice. All Hushai did is to give him a better alternative, a more suitable option to Absalom's nature than Ahithophel did. Because if he follows Ahithophel's advice, I mean, after all, it's rather risky, isn't it? To take the army that very night and go out in the dark trying to find David? That's a risky, that's a roll of the dice, correct? Hushai's advice is let's play it safe. Let's go slow. Let's get the whole nation together. And then secondly, notice that Ahithophel's advice is let me take 12,000 men tonight. And if Ahithophel goes and wins the victory against David, who's going to get the glory? Ahithophel will. What's Hushai's advice? Absalom, my advice is that you get the army together. You get the whole nation. You go in front of the army. Do you understand? If you've figured out something by now, what is Absalom's flaw as far as his character is concerned? I mean, this is the pretty boy. Of it. This is the Brad Pitt of Israel, okay? Or whoever the pretty boys are these days. This is the movie star. This is the best looking guy in the whole nation. And he's got the hair. Here's a fellow that's full of himself. And so all Hushai is doing is giving Absalom a choice that is compatible with his own overblown opinion of himself. Nobody has to twist Absalom's arm. Nobody has to make him do this. He freely chooses the option that he thinks will bring him the most glory. And you begin to see that God then... We call this in theological circles compatibilism. That the free moral agencies of man and the sovereignty of God are not at odds with one another. That they work hand in hand. You say, how is it that what God sovereignly chooses for me to do, I turn around and freely do it? How does that happen? Well, there is a mystery. But here the, God is pulling back the curtain a little bit, letting us see how that mystery unfolds. That all God is doing is giving Absalom a choice that elevates his own opinion of himself and puffs up his own pride. And Absalom will choose that every single time. What does God have to get you to do? How does He have to... Uh, let's say He... Uh, you know, the question is, how is it that God could ordain that I do a sinful thing? How does He ensure? Does He have to drag me by a hook in my nose to go do it? No, He just has to give me a, the option to do it. That's why we pray, deliver us from temptation. Because we know ourselves too well. If you're a Christian, you know your heart. You know where you came from. You know that that old man is still there. And so you're asking God, don't put me in a situation and turn me loose to do my own thing because I know what my own thing is going to do. And so you see here that God, all He has to do to ensure that something like this will happen is to just turn sinful man over to his sinful nature. That man will always choose the option that his nature demands. Always. Amen. Don't have to force him. Just give him the option. Does that mean God then is responsible for the sin? Absolutely not. Does God sometimes ordain sin? Yes, absolutely. But he's not the responsible agent. He's not the blamable, the culpable agent in our sin. He simply permits us, allows us, to do the sinful thing that our heart desires. So you see what I'm saying? You can sort of detect as you examine and analyze what's going on here. How it all unfolded that Absalom on the one hand is doing exactly what God ordained for him to do. He rose up, rebelled against his father, drove him from the throne, took his father's concubines until God's through with him and then God turns him over to his own pride.
for his own destruction. That God is completely in control of the whole situation. So, again, I've learned that uh, other people don't get quite as excited about these things as I do, but I find this an amazing account that gives us one glimpse into how all this works. And it's important for us because when we come to the crucifixion of our Lord, we see exactly the same thing going on. Is it God's will that His Son go to the cross? Absolutely. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. For this reason, Jesus said, I came into the world. So the men who took Jesus and nailed Him to the cross, can they say to God, God, why are you blaming us? We just did Your will. It's sort of the argument that Paul gives us in Romans 9. I mean, who can resist His will? We ought to be thanked by You, God. We're doing Your will. You wanted Your Son crucified Him. Christ crucified. We crucified Him. You see the reasoning? And yet Peter on the day of Pentecost turns to some of those who had been involved in the crucifixion You with your wicked hands. Even though it was the determinate counsel of God that put Christ on that cross, you have wickedly slain and crucified the just one. You're guilty. That was the last thing on your mind that we're going to go out here and serve God by crucifying His Son. You did it as His enemy. God used your hatred. He used your sin to bring about the fulfillment of His own will. Do you see the same mystery unfolding there at the cross? Well, that leaves us just one little question. I say little. Okay, I can see, Brother Mark, that God can easily ordain that I sin against Him. All He got to do is turn me over to His sin, but or my sin. How does He save us? Is it just a matter of God turning us over to our will? Again, we believe that you're a free moral agent, but we don't believe you have free will. You understand the technicality here. Yes, you did what you wanted to do simply because you wanted to do it. You did what your want to demanded. But notice, you did what your want to. You can't change your want to. That's the problem. That's the problem that must be overcome in salvation. The sinner who has a heart radically turned opposite from the the purposes of God Almighty must come to embrace the will of God. Surrender to the will of God. How is that going to happen? If by nature he hates the things of God. He hates God's law. He wants his own thing. How is it? that he can choose something so radically against his own nature. Well, there's one one answer to that. God's got to change his nature. God's got to do an operation, we would call it the new birth, a radical transformation whereby God gives a man a new heart. And that new heart has new desires, new nature that desires new things. And suddenly the will simply follows the nature. I, as an illustration, when I was a... I am one of the few people you ever meet on this planet that doesn't like chocolate. And uh, there's two or three of us. I've met a few others, but not many. And uh, everybody looks at you like you've lost your marbles if you say you don't like... I just can't stand it. And, uh, but there's a reason. And it goes back when I was in the first grade, little country school out in northeast Texas... Uh, that we had, you know, the little cartons of milk you get in school, uh, USDA thing, anyway, little cartons of chocolate milk. My buddy and I, oh man, we love, we love chocolate milk. We were always begging for more chocolate milk, and they would never give us what we wanted. But this was a Friday, and apparently they had a whole case of these little cartons that were going to go bad. They, they, you know, they were going to have the expiration date over the weekend. So they told me and my buddy we can have all the chocolate milk we wanted. I think, I don't remember exactly, but it was like 25 or 30 of those little cartons of chocolate milk that we downed that day. Oh, we love it, you know. Get all the chocolate milk you eat. I won't go into the gory details, but the weekend was not a pleasant time. 
And come Monday morning, the last thing I wanted, and I've never wanted it since, is chocolate. Chocolate anything. Ugh. You could say that's my fall from chocolate. Well, what would it take for me to love chocolate? You say, well, why don't you just choose to like it? Now, I can choose to eat it. I mean, if I'm at your house and you bring, you know, you made me a, a, a dessert chocolate pie and to keep from hurting your feelings, I'll hold my nose and eat that chocolate pie, okay? I can choose to eat it, but I cannot choose to like it. You see the problem? And what would it take for me to like it? Somebody's going to have to do a transplant on my taste buds. Somebody's going to have to give me something I don't have. A love, a desire, a taste for chocolate. Now, do you see what I'm illustrating here? So it is in the heart of the sinner. Unless God does an operation like that, you will never choose to come to Christ. You will never choose to turn your back on sin. You will never choose to surrender to the Lord of glory. You're too wrapped up in yourself. That's your nature. That's the way a sinful nature works. What will it take for you to bow before the Lord of glory? God's going to have to do an operation. A supernatural work from without. And you ask me, well, how would you know that? How would you recognize? What does that feel like? This is the work of the Spirit after all. And if you can feel the Spirit, you know we sing every time I feel the Spirit. If you can feel the Spirit, that ain't the Spirit. That's probably that pizza you ate last night. Uh, no, you don't. You know the Spirit. Remember Jesus said the Spirit's like the wind? You don't detect the wind directly. We pass through Nebraska going to our ranch out in Wyoming. There's a real high overpass out there that has a big sign. Watch for wind. And we watch real hard, but we never see it. Because you don't see the wind directly. You see the wind by its effects. By the change that it makes on the leaves of the trees and so forth. And so it is with the work of the Spirit of God. We do not see it or sense it directly. But oh, we know it by its effects that when we see a sinner suddenly fall in love with what he once hated, and when we see a sinner start hating what he once fell in love with, there's no mystery as what's going on here. There's been a work in his heart. He didn't know it was happening. We couldn't see it happening, but we see it by the effects. It's like the old saying, you see a turtle on top of a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. You see a God-hating, sin-loving sinner suddenly turn into a sin-hating, God-loving man. You don't have to ask where that came from. You say, well, wait a minute. It, doesn't the Scripture say that here in John 6, no man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. And doesn't that word draw mean like drag? And yeah, you're exactly right. And that's the only way you're coming. But the next verse explains the nature of that drawing. The verse goes on to say, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone, therefore, that has heard and learned of Him comes to Me, says Jesus. In other words, this isn't drawing you with a rope or a chain. It's drawing you by opening your eyes to spiritual truth. Light shining into the dark recesses of your heart. And man, when that happens, you're coming. You're coming to Christ. No matter what it costs, no matter what it takes, and woe be to the fellow who gets between you and Christ, you'll trample him in your desperation, your haste to get to Jesus. Because for the first time in your life, you see, you get it. There's hope for me. I'm a lost, ruined sinner. And there's a Savior who went to a cross to die for my soul. I'm going. I will rise, said the prodigal. I will rise. And go to my father. Well, there we are. Has that happened in your life?
You say, well, if it hadn't, what can I do? Well, you can beg God to do it. In fact, you say, well, Brother Mark, I, I'm, I have this desire to be saved. I have this desire to come to Christ. I know I need to. I, what do I? My friend, if you do, may I give you some encouragement? It may just be that this work has already begun in you. That's how it begins. That's how the Spirit starts. They shall all be taught of God. And they that have learned of Him come to me. It might just be that God is opening your eyes this, this day. Oh, my friend, don't discourage. There's so many blind all around you and you're suddenly getting a glimpse of light. Flee to the Savior. Cast yourself upon His mercy. And the good news is, all that the Father given me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I'll not cast out. Both things are true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glimpse into your sovereign purposes and how they are fulfilled. How, Father, they then reassure us that, yes, it's not that you save us apart from our will or against our will, but, Lord, you're able to change the wills of sinful man in this wonderful work of redemption and regeneration to cause us to want things we never wanted before and to hate things that once were our gods. Do that work in us. If we have it not, do it in those around us. May we see it in the lives of those we love and pray for in the lives of our neighbors here in this community. And may you do it that all the glory and all the praise belongs to you. In the name of Jesus, I ask it. Amen.